Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Hello, everybody. My name is Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek Interviews. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is a public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Liz Perry, and I was really interested to speak to her because she is a STEAM education advocate. She's authored several papers on the matter and even earned the Presidential Award for Excellence in Science engineering and mathematics mentoring in 2015. I'm interested to learn more about her transition from engineering to engineering ed educator, her involvement with various committees on engineering education and public speaking, of course. Welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Liz. Thank you, good morning. So from a bit of research I did on you, I saw that you got your degree in engineering management. I've never seen a degree before in my life, <laughs> so I'm curious to know what that actually entailed. Yeah, so engineering management was a new degree at the college I went to. I grew up in Missouri, in St. Louis, North St. Louis, and I went to school at University of Missouri Rolla, which is now called Missouri Institute of Science and Technology. Um, and uh, this degree combines fundamentals of engineering knowledge, so you get a sampling of courses, um, uh, to learn about what engineers do, but that you also take up series of business courses and management courses to prepare you for becoming a manager at some point in your career. Um, in my case, I, I did a, um, you do a concentration in a di discipline. So my concentration was in mechanical engineering. So oh. I took a, a course, most of the coursework of mechanical engineers, but my last two years, some of the upper level ME courses, I substituted with the uh, management courses, business management courses. Interesting. So was that when you went into school right away, that was something that you were interested in or is that something that you, you came to at some point? Oh, I had no idea. Um, <laughs> I, um, I, no one I really knew went to college um, and we didn't have a lot when we were growing up. Um, everybody, it was a blue collared neighborhood. Um, and uh, so college really, it was only through a friend. I saw his family, his dad was an engineer and I, and they lived, uh, much differently than I did. And, uh, and you know, when you're 17, <laughs> that kind of stuff, it, it makes you think. Uh, I had really good grades. And so um, I actually went to business school for a year and transferred into engineering after that and down to Rolla after that, because I wanted to do something more technical, but I, but I really loved the uh, management end of things. So there was a really great mentor there um, that I met first day. And uh, he was a big factor in, in my coming there and, and finishing out that degree. So when you finished this degree in engineering management, was it your idea to work as an engineer or was it your idea to work more, I guess, in the business side of, of things? It was to work as an engineer. I'm a problem solver at heart. Um, I am a collaborator at heart. Those things are really critical to me and there are aspects about engineering people really don't understand. Um, it's such a, such a jazzy thing to me. I mean, it really appealed to me. So I wanted to work on the technical end of things, but I wanted to understand the drivers um, because the business aspect is what drives everything engineers do. And so being able to understand, um, for example, a new product development, which is what I did at IBM when I first started, um, 
you know, you have to be very um, aware of the drivers of a new product as you are trying to bring it to market um, and take it to scale. Uh, and if you have a pretty solid understanding of the business fundamentals as an engineer, you can really help management make decisions that are um, good decisions for both now and the future. Oh, okay. So you, you started working as an engineer at IBM, but obviously you didn't stay just as an engineer. You moved into more, I guess, STEAM education, engineering education. What prompted that transition? Yeah, so at IBM, um, I when I started there, I was uh, in the first two years, IBM has a program called um, Executive Resources. And so if they if you're a person they see as a future executive, they kind of, they used to, <laughs> I don't think it's there anymore. They used to kind of poke you on the head and then, um, you know, give you opportunities to try to develop you. So I was made a manager um, 15 months into my IBM career. Um, I was a manufacturing manager and I really loved that. And so I loved working at IBM. I had a lot of wonderful opportunities, leadership and career growth opportunities. Met my husband there. But when I had my two children, um, for me, it was uh, a moment of clarity I'll never uh, not be grateful for because I could have done both. My husband was very willing. I mean, it wasn't, there wasn't any problem with that. He would have done whatever we needed as a family. Um, uh, but for me, I wanted to be home with my kids. Uh, luckily, at that time, I saw that this was a short-term window. And now, looking back, my children are, you know, 30-ish. Um, it's, uh, I've never regretted it. Oh, okay. You know, I don't... It's funny because you don't you don't tend to hear people making those kind of decisions these days. It's almost you always hear about making uh, having I guess the, the work life balance and how you do the you know you have your children then you and then you you continue to work and that's almost seen as the as I guess the preferred way to do things. It's kind of I don't I don't want to say old fashioned, but it is kind of old fashioned to like, you know well, have hell Neil I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wow. but. But we, I mean, it was on the cusp of my, a lot, you know, I had friends, the people in our, I'm 59, so the people in, I graduated in 1983. So the people in our group, there were people that, that we were right on the cusp of that, um, those decisions where it wasn't just an ex expectation. And certainly with my husband, it was not an expectation that I would be, if one of us was going to stay home, that I would be the one, um, which was, you know, one of the reasons I married the guy, right? Um, but the what I've learned, so I was out of IBM for, for 10 years. I, I left, I, I was with IBM 10 years and then I, I left and um, was at home full time until my oldest went to kindergarten. So then my youngest was like three, but I'd started a business with a friend in science education with children. And so that was a way to combine. Uh, she was also an engineer, an electrical engineer professor at Duke University, and she was home with her kids as well. And we just started a business and started going into schools and doing science and engineering lessons to help teachers and kids understand the connections with what they do in regular subject courses, how they're used to problem solve. And, and I have learned in, in that many, many long years since then is there is absolutely no such thing as work-life balance. <laughs> no, no such thing. It's called sequencing. And most women come to realize this if they're the primary one, but today men thankfully are right there with them on it. And so it's, it's just, you just sequence your life. You have to put pieces in and you have to realize that that piece will come back at another point. And uh, I was very fortunate to have that opportunity to do that. Not everybody does. And today it's really hard because the, the world for 
younger people is so much harder, the expectations and in the cost of living. I mean, it's just hard to live um, and support a family. So I was fortunate. When you worked at IBM, you said within 15 months, you became a manager. You were actually a manager of people. Yeah, I was a, I was a manufacturing manager. Um, it's part of this program, right? So I went to management school um, and uh, worked a, managed a second shift ma manufacturing group on a key product for IBM at the time. It was a startup product, um, a new business for IBM. Um, so I managed a bunch of college kids and a bunch of really, really, what's the word, seasoned IBM workers. And so uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was, that was an interesting uh, thing. <laughs> They're old as dirt. <laughs> yeah, so that was an interesting mix of those two. Yeah, you know? yeah. They wait for their pension to kick in. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> so we had fun though. It was a lot of fun. I mean, I have to say, I mean, you have to come to, I mean, the one thing I think that has saved my mental health when it has is you don't have a sense of humor about life. You can forget it, man. I mean, you just have to be able to roll with it um, a lot, even when you're really angry or really sad. You just have to remember that uh, a sense of humor is really a godsend. When you were going into the schools to, to to teach the kids, what was the I guess the it was the the I guess the motivation for it was you saw the lack of that type of of education within the schools and you thought that you and your friend your electrical engineering friend could impart that to the children. Somewhat of that. That's a that's a higher than a very nice nicer aspirational way of saying it. I mean, we had kids. We did science stuff with them all the time. Um, we both really loved doing hands-on science, and then we you know we're both really intelligent women and so we started looking at well you know maybe if these kids did something when they were learning about um plants maybe if they actually did a garden and we did all the math with that and showed them how to do that and um, measured the growth and graph that and all that kind of stuff they would actually understand what they're learning and so we started it with these summer camps that were hilarious now i look back we rented our little neighborhood clubhouse and we charged a very nominal fee for kids to come in for a morning for a week and we had themes like the science of cowboys and indians the science of uh, the the science of camping the science of this the science of that and so we did like in the um <laughs> the one of the wild west it was called the science of the wild west we um like we did crazy things like went out and collected leaves and plants and all this stuff and then boiled them in water to show them how dyes were made and they made things with them. And I mean, it was, it was just a way to show them how the connections were made. And it was a pretty big hit. I mean, we had, we ran some, you know, for us, which two women just doing this with our own kids hanging on. Um, we had a lot of interest in it. And so we saw there was a need. And then we started doing assemblies in schools and classes and all this kind of stuff. Before we then went, she went to, from Duke to NC State when my kids were in school. And I, um, uh, she brought me on and we wrote a, a National Science Foundation grant that was a pretty significant grant and I was the uh, project director of that. So that's when I started working. So I worked part-time uh, the whole time my kids were in school. Oh, okay. And I guess the, the, I guess the motivation for that is it, at least that type of work would lend itself for you to work part-time as opposed to working as an engineer, which I don't know, is that even possible to work part-time? Well, I went back to IBM um, when oh. my youngest started kindergarten and I lasted four months <laughs> oh, <laughs> because wow. my perspective had changed about how I wanted to use my abilities. Um, it, it, 
it is, if you get off a track and women face this all the time and fathers who stay home and then go back face this all the time, if you get off a track, you're perceived as not being serious about your, um, about your career and therefore like a, it, it kind of looks to you like a, a universal adapter, right? You can put you in anywhere. And I got put into a group and it was okay. The people I worked with were fine. We were still solving some problems, but it wasn't engineering the way I wanted to do it, which was the fast pace that I had started IBM on. And that's unfortunately rare, but that's what I thought was normal, right? <laughs> um, and the more, more importantly, I felt like I was a member, a critical member of a team. And I did not feel that way when I went back. And so after four or five months, I decided to leave. Um, and that was the second time I left IBM. And it was, um, that was easy. The first time I left was harder, but um, because of where I could go. Um, but the school thing, uh, it became clear to me that if we did not start focusing on how kids learned about problem solving and engineering and that more kids who didn't look like my husband, a white male, could become engineers. If we didn't start focusing on that, um, there were a lot of problems that weren't gonna get solved because a diversity of problem solvers brings about, brings about better solutions. And there's history, examples through history, all kinds of things, the seat belts, you know, all male team finds out that uh, the way it's designed is designed for an average size male and not an average size female. And so females were getting hurt. It's like, yo, <laughs> you know, it, it, there's so many things that you think about that if there had been a diverse team of problem solvers, a lot of hurt could have been avoided. And even then, my friend and I were aware that we could impact that. So the NSF grant was a way to do that. It was a new program. And what we did is we hired graduate students in engineering and undergraduates in engineering and education. And then we par paired an engineering undergraduate with an, with an uh, education undergraduate and assigned them to a school. And they went into the school and had to be there each 15 hours a week. And uh, they were supervised by a graduate student. So the graduate student was learning management skills. I, I, I supervise the graduate students, the graduate students supervise the undergrads. So they were learning management skills, which I normally wouldn't get in an engineering graduate degree. And then um, the undergrads were learning how education and engineering were connected and they were a resource to teachers. So we did that. We, that was refunded a couple of times. We did that for a number of years and um, had great success with it. So oh, that was, it fed my soul. Yeah, that's, that actually does sound like a really cool idea. I wonder why other schools, hopefully others, was this something you just did with, with NC State, or did you know of any other schools were doing something similar? It was a program that um, NSF, National Science Foundation, had called Graduate Research in K-12 Education, and we were in the first um, announcement of it. So whenever you can catch NSF on a first announcement, there's usually a lot of things they didn't think of, not because they're not capable, but they're not, maybe not fully uh, understanding people have really big dreams. And so what we did with ours was different. Like we traded in a graduate stipend for undergraduate students. Well, that turned out later, it's not what they wanted us to do, but they let us do it because we, it was an idea. So we took a, we, we did a lot of different things, but there were universities. It was a huge network, the GK 12 network, um, universities all over the country. And most of my professional colleagues today started from that program. Um, it was discontinued as NSF tends to do, you know, they go oh. in cycles with grants. And so it was discontinued after a number of years, but, um, and replaced with something else. But it just depends on the priorities of the, of the administration in charge, right, about what NSF funds. 
And so when uh, education is not as valued um, by an administration, there are fewer um, unique and um, entrepreneurial opportunities like that. Do you know what the program that it was replaced with is or uh, was? They have others that are, that it's nothing like GK-12, but they have others that, um, you know, that, that look at putting, particularly graduate students, they're particularly interested in um, focusing on getting graduate students to consider to become better teachers. And so working with educators is their goal, but also to become a, a professor, right? I mean, they want graduate students to, to stay and have a fulfilling career in academia. So hmm. it's all intended to support that. That's interesting to hear. Because that's the engineering directorate, though. Yeah, when I, when I when I think about that, even just from from some of the grad students I know, a lot of them, the reason they go outside of academia and go into industry is because there aren't enough jobs to support them in academia. So if you're teaching them, if you have a program that's teaching them to to stay in academia, and then there are no jobs to support them in academia, doesn't that kind of de defeat the purpose of the program? Or am I wrong in my assertion that they're leaving academia because because of, of other factors? Um, I would just say, and I'm not being uh, coy with this, I would just say there is a huge amount of opportunity in restructuring higher education to allow for innovators and new thinking to be brought into the professoriate. I mean, the tenure system in general, in Liz Perry's opinion, I'm not a professor, right? If I was a professor, I'd probably say something different. The tenure system in general, while I understand the reasons why it's put in place, it does, um, in, a, in effect, shield um, some folks who aren't, um, who aren't really open to new ideas. It shields them from having to participate in things. So I just think in general, there's opportunities to reinvigorate higher ed. And strangely enough, in my opinion, the COVID epidemic might be one end up being one of the big opportunities to do so because of the resulting impact on universities and colleges with what's going on today. Yeah. I noticed also from, from doing some research that you actually did some work with the American Society of Engineering Education and also with ASME. What did that work involve? Yeah, so ASEE, the uh, Engineering Educators, that's kind of the mothership for people who work in engineering education, so universities and colleges, and so that's our professional organization, you know, so um, it, uh, my, Laura Bottomley and I, my partner and I at, at NC State, wrote a number of papers about the work we did, and then when, um, when I started do, going, doing different work, I got involved with the Boston Museum of Science and the Engineering as Elementary program, which is uh, still today um, at 12 years old, you know, the bellwether program for teaching engineering to small children. Um, we, I started uh, getting involved with ASCE and was part of a group um, that founded a division. So in ASCE, like most professional organizations, there are subdivisions that people have interest areas. And so we had mechanical engineers, electrical engineers and all that. So we formed one for people that worked in what we then called K-12, but now we refer to as PK-12 or, or P-12, for preschool to 12th grade. And so we formed a division. And so I became a leader in that division and it was a long-term thing, um, grew the division and then was asked by the board of directors to form and uh, carry out that form a committee and at the board level um, to carry out um, an investigation of and development of um, a strategy for the organization on P12 engineering. 
and there's only two committees that that at that level so this was a big deal because the other committee is diversity and so it was p12 and diversity that went to the board so i spent four years doing that and we developed all the founding documents beliefs principles uh, gained awareness and everything and then uh, i i very uh, willingly retired from that uh, position and now i'm just back to being a member at ASCE. but that's where i present my research um, so that's my affinity group for research and um, it's also where I learn uh, the most and collaborate with with folks so what's been the outcome of of the work you did on that committee uh, it, uh, the work that the committee did um, that I was fortunate to be a part of is, is an amazing team right I mean these people are just amazing and we worked hard um, we developed a uh, basically a strategic plan for the organization in p12 and so yeah. things like um, at our at our booth, where normally it would be um, colleges and engineering of engineering and vendors and everything at the at the booth, we had a big front and center booth to make people aware of the opportunities. And so one of the things our, our, we were tasked with was, how do you show people um, what they can be doing in their local schools or in their colleges of education, and why is this important? Well, one of its important is a huge retention thing for students um, who are not white males. It is for white males too, strangely enough, doing outreach and working in schools, not strangely enough, but people might, might be surprised to hear that, but students in general want to do something to give back, right? I felt that way, I'm sure you felt that way. You, you, if you had an opportunity, you wanted to somehow help. So as it turns out, P12 outreach when you're a student is a real driver for them feeling more engaged with the community, more engaged at the college, and feeling like a leader at a time when they are a student. And so um, the P12 initiative and the diversity committee work very closely together in, in ASCE because we overlap on a lot of stuff, but it's a huge impact on um, bringing people into engineering who may not understand that engineering is basically a, uh, a profession that is a helping profession, um, and that you don't have to look like what you see in old pictures of engineers, that everybody can be an engineer. And so um, that was the big driver of the committee and that's what drove me um, to share my love of, of engineering and more importantly, the potential of, of what engineering can do for a person's career with people. And it, it does attract a lot of people, Wonderful. different kinds of people. That's great. I, I commend you for wanting to give back to, to the community. I, I'm, I'm quite selfish. I don't want to give back to anybody. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's why you're doing this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, do, I do this for vanity purposes. Uh-huh, yeah, right. <laughs> so then I also saw that you do work, you, you did work with ASME. What did that work entail? Yeah, so, you know, me mechanical engineering is my home planet. Um, and so um, ASME has a P12 committee. So my expertise is in P12 engineering. And so that's what I'm considered an expert in. So I get called into projects or asked to participate in projects because of that. Um, but the mechanical engineers, of course, they have, uh, like many uh, traditional uh, engineering backgrounds, they, they want to attract more and more different looking people um, and so for a broader perspective. And so their P12 work focuses on that. So last year I developed um, some webinars for them to use with their members and volunteers to go into schools, basically you know, teach them you know, what are the, what are the standards? How, you know, why do you have to care about that? What do schools look like? How do you get in? You know, all the little stuff, but also here's some stuff you can do. And why are you doing it? Why do we want it? We are growing problem solvers. That's why we're doing it. And this is how you do it. So it's work for them to share with their members. Okay, cool. 
I, I, I get the sense that I, I may know the answer to this, but I'll ask anyway. <laughs> when it comes to, to public speaking, what topics do you like to speak about? Passion. I like to speak about passion. Um, I think the thing that I saw, I mentored a lot of students and you, I mean, that's hence the mentoring thing. Um, I, and I still mentor. I have students that started working for me in 1997 who I am now like, they're, I know their children, you know, <laughs> like I keep in touch with everybody. And um, when I speak about engineering, I, I really want to convey that it's, it's for anyone and that within us all, we, we all, I think, have an innate desire to solve problems and be a problem solver. And we just may not understand how we can do that. And especially, especially children from low income homes and children um, of color don't always understand that. Um, they don't always understand the opportunities. Women, same thing. We are no way close to solving the problem, but when I speak about it in public, what I'm told I convey is that I feel deeply about the opportunity equation with engineering and that I fully believe anyone can do it and that I passionately, passionately believe it is one of the funnest jobs in the world. Whether you are actually doing a hardcore engineering calculation or you are using your collaborative creativity and ethical skills to bring a team together all of that is contributes to the greater good and I think that comes I've been told that comes clear I also just I have fun with it I mean I um, when you love what you do it's really hard to hide that right and so it's um, I think the passion is what people remark on the most and then my bad jokes are the second thing <laughs> yes, engineering can be fun, even when you're managing seasoned employees. Yes. Oh, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> so also when it comes to, to public speaking, is that something you've always been good at? And if not, what'd you do to get better at it? You know, I didn't really think of myself as being a good public speaker. I, I know now that I am. Um, but I think it's, you know, I think two things. One is um, I am very real. The Liz you see in a public speaking thing is the Liz you're going to see on a Zoom call or in a meeting or at the grocery store. Um, and I think that's really important for public speakers to really let people see themselves. And the other thing is I have passion and I can speak with that passion and I'm irreverent. And I think the irreverency kind of helps it's like a, an entry card going in. I don't intentionally try to be funny. But I also, while I take everything seriously, I don't take anything seriously. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's, you can take it seriously and still um, enjoy. And I think that's one of the things that people comment the most on that, on when, they, when I speak at a group, is that my passion comes through and I also just enjoy people and that comes through. One thing I forgot to ask you about was that the presidential award that you received, is that something that you're nominated for or do you apply for it? How, how did that come about? Well, it is a, it's a nomination, but I'm going to be honest with you, 95% of people apply for it. And so I, you know, I have learned one thing. It's kind of hard for me to admit this, but I mean, I, I have, you have to learn to promote yourself, right? Um, but not in an annoying way where everybody avoids you or blocks you. Um, so it's, a, it's an application you're nominated for or you apply for, but um, you, you put forth an application and then it's reviewed by a committee. It's run through the National Science Foundation. Um, 
and you know through all of their stringent reviews and um, the they choose some small group of the number of applications they have the year I won the group the year I was one for was 2012 and I was one of like eight people but um, it wasn't awarded till 2015 and so it the the application is pretty extensive. You, you have to get very detailed on, especially your mentoring. And in that case, I, I have mentored so many students and still mentor so many students that um, that was an easy part for me. It's hard in a written document to convey passion. I used a lot of notes from former students and teachers that I've worked with to help with that. But um, that was an amazing, amazing um, accomplishment. And, and it was an amazing honor. And, and then I got to, with the people that I was in with, you know, I got to be friends with them when we went up to Washington for the ceremonies and went to see President Obama and, and stuff like that. So that was, uh, those are friends still. So uh, it was something. Oh, that's, that sounds pretty cool. When it comes to also, when I, when I think about public speaking, do you have a, a process for putting your presentations together? And if so, what is it? Yeah, I'd really love to tell you I do. Um, I think... I try. Okay, so I try to have a process and start writing ahead and all this kind of stuff. But inevitably, when I stand up, I never, I don't ever read a speech that I that I had written. I tried that early. Um, I, I just, I, I actually just think about things a lot. I think about it a lot, and start maybe start drawing some pictures about things that I want to talk about or writing down some keywords. And I, what I eventually end up doing is taking up index cards with keywords or phrases, and then I. Um, put them in an order that makes sense to me, and then um, and then I get up and speak. And for the most part, that works really well for me because a key phrase will um, uh, will jog my mind. Most of the times when I'm asked to speak, it is for a reason of the mentoring or um, or the joy. <laughs> That's what one of my one of my people said, you're just joyful up there about engineering. And I think that's just weird. I mean, people not weird, like you're not weird. It's like people just aren't that way. Right. Um, but so when I know I'm there for those, when I'm there to, to be um, inspirational to some extent, um, that is very easy for me to try to do because I really love people and I believe in them. And that is, uh, I've never been a person I don't believe can't do anything I've done and so much more. And I think that becomes clear to people. So when I'm preparing, I just remember that. I love people, I believe in them. This group is gonna be awesome. And I'm usually not disappointed. Nice. When it comes also, when you, you give presentations, do you ever get nervous? And if oh, so, yeah. how do you quell your nerves? <laughs> I get really nervous. Um, you know, I think the first, I'm very awkward the first few minutes of any talk I give because I'm settling myself down. And once it's like, you know, I'm not, I don't do a good job of calling my nerves, to be honest with you. I get up there, my hands will be shaking and um, my car, so I put my cards down and keep my hands down. And, um, and I'm so worried I'm going to blurt out something because I'm one of those people, like I think that I blurt it and that's often not productive <laughs> to a conversation, especially if you're like, it's not a positive thing. Um, once I get past those first few minutes and I get, I start, I see one of my keywords um, and I look at the group and they're paying attention. And once I, I look for people's certain people's faces and eyes. So I scan the crowd and anybody, you know, this, you do some public speaking, anybody that does this, you scan the crowd, you see a friendly face or a friendly expression. 
And that's kind of your touch point. And so as I'm talking, I'll be scanning the room and trying to meet people's eyes, but I'll always touch back to the, that person or the people to get reassured that I haven't gone off path. Um, so uh, my audience is always a huge help to me in that respect. That's an excellent tip on, on giving presentations is looking for friendly faces and using those as a touch point. Do you have any other tips to help people in becoming more effective in public speaking? Just enjoy yourself. Speak from your heart and know that you know what you know. And it sounds trite, but gotta be honest with you, the passion is not something you can manufacture. Passion is something that people get from you and they use all aspects, nonverbal and verbal communication to get it. And as long as you remember how passionate you are about the subject you're asked to speak about, it'll come through. It's just, you have to get over the fact that you have to be the perfect speaker. Um, and the, that's, that's a tough hill, no lie, no lie, but that's where the touch points come in. It also helps too, if you can also bring someone you know in friendly face and stick them in the front row. And you know, someone who is a, knows you well enough to be able to go <laughs> or something. Uh, not always the case with me because I, it's usually I'm, I'm with a large group um, you know, or, or a school. I speak at some schools and school districts and um, you know, to motivate them. And um, I don't often know people there, but yeah, eye contact. If you get nervous and you have to stop and breathe, just say, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> you know? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. They can all relate to that, right? Um, yeah. And it kind of removes the barriers. So, yeah. Wonderful. Is there anything else you'd like to mention about things you're working on, Liz? Yeah, I'm, uh, well, I'm really excited. I'm, uh, I I'm working, have my own business, uh, uh, consulting business. And so I'm working on some cup, couple of really exciting projects that, could impact um, um, engineering education in a, in a big way. And I'm not an instrumental person. In one case, I'm a part of an evaluation team for a group that is looking at how do we show kids that engineering is for anyone. Um, and then another project I'm looking at is, you know, how do we define even to the littlest what it looks like? Um, and those are both, you know, things that just feed my soul. <laughs> but also, I just, um, you know, my, my driver is, a broader perspective brings better solutions. And if we have learned anything in the last year in this country, is if we do not have a broad perspective in culture, race, background, income, every demographic you can think of on the solution team, the solutions we develop will not work. And so I'm, I'm always interested in working with groups and do a lot of pro bono stuff in this on, on, helping to achieve that vision of everybody's think counts. And um, it's aspirational, but it's not. There's a lot of people out there who think the same way as I do. And so I look, seek out those people. Uh, so those two projects I'm working on, uh, just can't say much more than that at this point, but it's exciting and it's for all. And that is one of my drivers. Wonderful. How can people get in touch with you, Liz? Uh, best way is through my email. Um, as you have learned, uh, <coughs> LinkedIn doesn't always work. Uh, <laughs> my email is elizabeth.perry.consulting, and it's Perry with an A at Gmail. So that's the best way to get in touch with me. Um, I also, um, and, and if you do that, I'll respond back and, and figure out other ways to, to do so. But that's the best way. Wonderful. 
Well, thanks again for, for speaking with me today, Liz. Everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. Consider checking out the public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. You can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Liz. Thanks a lot, Neil. Nice meeting you.